Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Kate Woda. I'm delighted to share a panel discussion from the 2019 Immuno-Oncology 360 Conference, also known as IO360, on the topic of monetizing science, turning an asset into value through IPOs. This session is led by Dr. Andrew Baum, Head of Global Healthcare and Managing Director of Equity Research for Citi. Dr. Baum is joined by David Epstein, Executive Partner of Flagship Pioneering, and Dan Passeri, President and CEO of Q Biopharma. The next IO360 program will take place February 26 through 28, 2020, at the Crown Plaza Times Square Hotel in New York City. I hope you enjoy the podcast. So um, I gave a little bit of an introduction, but I'm sure you can do it yourselves better than, than I could. So perhaps focusing on your, in, your investments right now, and particularly on flagship, for those who are not familiar with the unique business model you have, perhaps start there and Dan to talk about um, Q. I think that would be helpful for those in the audience who are not familiar. Sure, let me just do uh, two minutes. Um, so when I was at Novartis um, Pharmaceuticals running their business, I, in a fellow name, Irvay Opino, who you probably know pretty well, CEO of Insight, uh, licensed the CAR-T technology from University of Penn and brought it to Novartis. And as a result, I got very, very interested in immuno-oncology and subsequent to that found a firm in um, Cambridge called Flagship Pioneering. People often think it's a venture capitalist. They're not because they're not. we do not invest in other people's science, although there is great science out there. But rather, this is an organization that has its own scientists, its own 500,000 square feet of lab space in Cambridge. And it basically dreams up new companies that will um, uh, be able to uh, progress new biologic platforms, mRNA, microbiome, red cell therapeutics, which is Rubius, the company that I chair, uh, and, and the like. So that, that's just a little bit of a short commercial. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, so I'm a president and CEO of Q Biopharma, and Q was uh, formed as a spin-out out of Albert Einstein College of Medicine. And it was formed out of a protein engineering group, and the objective was to basically design molecules that are able to engage T-cells in a very selective way, and it's taking advantage of the specificity of the T-cell receptor. And the design's out of Steve uh, Almo's lab, you know, he's a protein engineer, and what Steve uh, constructed was a molecule that looks like an antibody. It's built on an FC scaffold, and it has linkers with two MHCs. It can be class one, class two, at which uh, presents an epitope to a particular TCR. And then linked off of the MHCs are, can be a myriad of uh, co-stimulators. Uh, our first drug uh, framework is predicated on delivering IL-2. And kind of the secret sauce here is that the molecule is engineered so that the MHC epitope interaction with the T-cell receptor is driving the affinity. So we're able to selectively deliver these uh, co-stimulatory molecules to the target T-cells. So we have a, a platform that's highly modular. Uh, IL-2 happens to be the first one we're bringing forward. We have an ongoing collaboration with Albert Einstein. and. Um, T-cell energy with CD80BBL for chronic infectious disease. And we also have a partnership with Merck in autoimmune where we're making class two and class one for depleting or modifying the behavior of pathogenic T-cells. Um, it's been quite a uh, constellation of challenges going from a spin out from a university through 
two rounds of private funding to an IPO, and I look forward to going through that process as part of the panel. Yeah, one more thing. Yeah. So uh, we hadn't met before, so it, tur it turns out that the company I'm chairing, uh, which is making red cells and bioreactors, uh, naturally uh, allogeneic products that we can uh, build at scale and not it can avoid some of the challenges of the autologous T cells. We've put on the surface of our products IL-12, uh, IL-15, which I saw was on your list, 41BB ligand, MHC1, MHC2, co-stimulatory ligands, all on the same red cell. So actually, there's some overlap. I don't think that's how you chose us, but we do some similar things, and we can debate later whose approach is better. Okay. It's, it's, it's a broad church. <laughs> Um, so I do want to spend most of the time talking about financing, which is the key topic of the panel. But before we get to that stage, perhaps we could talk about um, attracting, developing talent. And um, you both have slightly different business models, but um, having really smart science and where you find it is one important question, but also selecting which executives are going to be able to work with you and fit within that structure. Um, is another important question. So, so, so for both of you, could you talk about, f for David, I guess, finding that raw talent and whether the network that you have built, exploring fringes of those networks, identifies the next promising area? Because I think that's of great interest. And then more for Dan, the challenges of building out an executive team and then the importance of an SAB, which certainly I look at a lot when I'm looking at private companies. So I'll separate talent into two groups. Our true scientific talent, when I talk about true scientific talent, the people that are both hypothesizing, doing the genetic engineering, doing the real discovery for us, and then the management teams. Uh, the scientific talent uh, we get uh, by having brought into flagship five extraordinary MD, PhD type individuals who are among the most creative people I've ever met. They're a lot smarter than I am, that, that is for sure. Uh, they're fearless about imagining uh, new ways to manipulate biology in ways that no big drug company uh, would do on their own in their own labs. And what we do is we bring in 25 to 30 uh, PhD students typically, or MD PhD students from Harvard, MIT, and the like every summer into uh, flagship. Uh, those people work on projects, and some of them end up staying and helping fill out our scientific terms. When it comes to uh, building out a company, which would typically be around what venture capitalists typically call Series B. Uh, we don't call it Series B because it's flagship money at that point, mostly flagship money at that point. Um, I, for the most part, rely on the network I've built over the you know, 25 plus years in the pharmaceutical industry. And you'll see that uh, many of the people that run my companies, Pablo Cagnoni at Rubius, uh, Bill Hinshaw at um, Excella Health, uh, these are people I've worked with before. I know their strengths, I know their weaknesses, and then I, and I work with them to fill out the rest of the executive team. I found that to be much more productive than using recruiters to find people for us, although upon occasion we do have to uh, use a, a recruiter. Okay, thank you. It's a, uh, it's a complex process because it's iterative and dynamic. Uh, the company evolves and your, uh, your management team needs evolve. So one of the things I wanted to make sure we did not do was hire um, a C-level set of managers in the early stage of the company's development, because I felt the talents that we would attract in the early stage would be quite different from what we would need in a couple of years. Um, and you, on one of the slides that you presented, you talked about the fact that uh, academic research some, uh, you know, often doesn't translate. 
So when I first joined the company, it was really academic research. And what I decided to do was really build out the SAB to pressure test that research. Um, and we have hit a plow on the uh, SAB, David Baker, Jacques Bonchereau, and then um, I attracted for the clinical side, Ken Pienta, who's a professor at Johns Hopkins, head of urology. And I used that group along with some board members as acting as a proxy for um, the chief scientific officer overseeing our science. And I waited until we had a body of data that was mature enough that I could attract a scientist who had pharmaceutical company experience that really understood preclinical development, interfacing translationally with clinical. Uh, and I waited until after we had the IPO so that the company had financial uh, leverage. Uh, we were able to attract Anish Suri from uh, Janssen, and uh, he's already transformed the organization. Um, we hired a patent litigator as our general counsel because the IP estate is so important as we evolve to build basically a parameter space around the innovation. And then uh, we also, for the chief business officer, I also wanted to wait until we had maturity in the organization because I wanted to have somebody who also had pharmaceutical company experience, uh, understood the financial aspects of it, uh, and was a real strategist. And I'm very pleased we were able to bring on Bethany Mancia from Amgen, who was in their BD department. She drove the transaction between Micromet and, uh, and Amgen, so she really understood the I.O. space. So I, I really felt what we needed to do is look at it dynamically over a multi-year period in terms of uh, different phases of the company's evolution. I mean, it's an interesting observation because I typically encounter, and my direct coverage universe is much larger companies, but I get involved in, in, in meeting with some of the smaller companies. And the, there's an unbelievable number of companies I, I see who are public and yet don't have an SAB. And to me, it seems remarkable to have got to that stage without actually having a team in place, just from a, a, either from an investor point of view, but more importantly, from an internal point of view. So it's interesting that you were thoughtful to putting it in place earlier rather than later. Yeah. David, you look like you're squinting, you're disagreeing oh, or agreeing? No, no, I'm not disagreeing. I just find it odd, at least most of the companies in the Boston area I've interacted with have SABs and their boards are actually typically, when they're early stage, heavily oriented towards scientists. Um, and usually the, trans the problem is usually more the other problem, which is how do you transition to a board of people that know how to really develop drugs through pivotal trials, perhaps even commercialize, and that you have to then do a whole swap out of people and, and make that transition. And my, my observation may be biased because you know, I'm split my time between the UK and Europe and here. And so it's a somewhat different dynamic in richness of talent and how they think about it. So it may be a, just a geographical issue. Yeah, just a comment further on that. Um, you know, one of the, I have a couple of uh, phrases I really like, and one is a quote from uh, the uh, former CEO of Intel, which is only the paranoid survive. And, you know, you, 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 you uh, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. Um, I really felt the SAB was there as a pressure tester um, to really scrutinize the science before we started trying to interface with pharmaceutical companies because they know a lot more than we do in terms of the, the landscape that we know our technology obviously better than anyone. But having to answer complex questions, uh, the best way to do it is through the uh, pressure testing of a, of a very skilled and capable SAB. 
So maybe we could shift lanes and move on to the financing side of things. And, and we live in this wonderful world at the moment that um, there are seemingly endless supplies of capital to throw behind oncology, um, including um, preclinical um, as well as clinical. And this certainly hasn't always been the case. And long may it last, but we know that it won't. Um, we're also living in a time where uh, venture capital is standing tall and strong. But if we go back maybe nine years ago, with the exception of um, captive funds inside pharma companies, they were dying on the vine in terms of capital. So things have really changed. And I think we need to remember that. But when you're thinking about the sources of capital to finance during a pre-IPO stage, because clearly there are a number, there's you know, licensing rights, there's taking industry stakes, there's crossover rounds, there's all kinds of options at your disposal. What are the decisions that you have to go through and the complexities inside your company? And it's somewhat different for you, David, given your control, but um, for typically where you have multiple stakeholders, how do you work your way through it? What considerations do you make? Yeah, so I'll, as you pointed out, flagship's a bit different. So flagship does all the seed, does all the A, and does the vast majority of the B. There might be perhaps 10% of the equity that would be sold out in, in the B round, and maybe another 10 to 15% in the crossover round. By the time a flagship company goes public, most times flagship still has 50 to 55% of the company. So in, in many ways, it's the principal owner. We think that's a good thing because we can have a lot of influence and we can share a lot of the capabilities uh, in, inside of Flagship. So for us, um, the strategy is very simple. We're looking for investors in the B or the crossover or the IPO, which have a long-term horizon, uh, understand the challenges that the company needs to jump through so they, they won't overreact in either direction as new data emerges and people that we've learned to trust over time. So, you know, you had Khalil up here as an example presenting. Uh, Khalil's uh, company, Invis, invested in, you know, the B round for Rubius because I knew the type of investor he would be. Um, when I did the Rubius IPO, we were 12X oversubscribed. Uh, many of those were hedge funds of various, you know, colors. Uh, they didn't get our stock because that was not the kind of investor we want this. So for us, it's basically about people understand biology, they understand drug development, and they're longer-term holders, and they can articulate back to us the promise of a highly differentiated platform company like Arubius Therapeutics. That's how we, we make our decisions. I, I agree with all of that. Um, I just add, in terms of looking at various sources of capital, uh, partnering pre-IPO, we considered very carefully and we um, had to make decisions strategically. We have a, a broad platform that has the ability to uh, uh, address a number of indications. We're principally focused on immuno-oncology, uh, but we also have the prospects of autoimmunity and we had to make a decision. Do we try to raise further capital and build the company out with those competencies or partner? And we chose to pre-IPO partner the uh, several indications in the autoimmune side uh, to a top-tier pharma company, and we started that process, um, you know, very deliberately and strategically. We ended up consummating a transaction with Merck, and so it gave us access to capital, but also competencies that we did not possess and felt we didn't want to build out to dilute our focus. But uh, that interaction has you know, also enriched the company in terms of 
the insights they've provided us through the steering committee meetings, et cetera. So it was a strategic decision of cost of capital dilution in some form, whether it was through more, more shares or giving up rights of an asset. So we, we made that decision, you know, obviously at the board level uh, to, to look at um, diversification, optionality, but just keep our focus on immuno-oncology uh, and then try to build out a, uh, a pipeline before the IPO. And it, it sounds a sort of wonderfully straightforward, smooth process, but oh. but knowing how companies work and, and, you know, some companies may exist in this perfect world where everyone nods their head in agreement with the, the chief executive, but in reality, it's unlike that. So um, could you share either your perspectives of you know, going through the process of prioritization where you have scientists who are fighting the corner to keep the commitment to a parallel area alive, you know, the autoimmune implications or the fibrosis indications or whatever it is, aside from exploring it with an oncology? Sure. Um, you know, in reality, on a day-to-day -day basis in the meeting rooms, it's uh, to use your metaphor of spaghetti on the wall. It's a spaghetti network of chaos. Um, <laughs> No, but you, you, have, you have different prioritizations, you have different vantage points. Ultimately, what we do is just look at what is it we do well. We constantly try to stay focused on our core competencies and then strategically, um, where do we have the, uh, the best option for traction uh, with investors, with pharmaceutical companies, and really critically evaluate our data sets. What are the critical studies? And we need to continually look at prioritization. That's an ongoing, dynamic process. The board has a certain perspective, the SAB has a certain perspective, uh, and management has a certain perspective. Ultimately, you have to balance all of those countervailing uh, considerations and, and looking at what your opportunities are, because uh, you need to keep making decisions that allow you to move forward. So, and it's that way with partnering. You, know, you, you want to start off with multiple options, but ultimately it's where you're getting pull um, and where the opportunities are, are offering themselves. So it's a, you know, it's a dynamic process. There's really no straightforward for, formula. And as you stated, it's not linear. It's a, it's a very uh, iterative process. So I think that was perfectly well said. Now I can contrast that with you know, doing it in a big company. Things keep moving in a big company. When you have tens of thousands of people working for you, you don't always know what's going on. Even though there's lots of spaghetti and the sauce is changing all the time as well, you're, you can be in the room with these people a lot. So you actually have a pretty good idea of what's going on when you're a small company of 20, 30, 40, even 200 people. You have a good feel for what's happening. When it's 50,000 people, everything changes. It's a very different kind of process. Yeah, I'd just like to add one, one more thing. One of the things I, I've observed looking at the company on a macro level as it evolves, um, the culture changes as you bring new skills in. And you asked earlier about building the team. Those decisions are critical because they really influence the ethos and the behavior of the organization. So bringing someone of the caliber of Anish Suri in as our CSO, he built a discipline into the organization. So there's really a focus on rigor. So no decisions are made without data supporting that decision. Where early in your evolution, there are a lot of assumptions and there's you know, a lot of passion and enthusiasm and there's luck right, in, in, involved in some of those choices. Uh, but you can see more, more and more sort of statistics-based decisions being made, and I think that, that helps the company make decisions uh, when we have options going forward. So let's talk about the process of going public and the timing of what feeds into your decisions. Given the world is awash with capital, you don't need to go public certainly at the moment. There are alternative sources. What is it? Is it just the market is so rich that 
you know, you can get a valuation and it brings cash in the door? Or do you think there's a certain um, suite of, of news flow or there's management competences are fully built out? What's the, the critical timing for you? And it's obviously multifactorial, but to talk through that and also to talk through the process of, of size of, of offering that you're looking at. Yeah, so some everybody has different philosophies on this. Um, my experience has been that developing uh, a new product and certainly one with a new platform. You're, you're talking about needing cash in the range of one to one and a half billion dollars, perhaps on average, to really get something developed. And sometimes people will do it much faster and they'll, they'll get lucky along the way and nothing will go wrong. And then you have the other extreme where it takes companies decades and they spend literally billions and billions of dollars to get there. If you really want to attract that much capital and you want to, you want to know that you, you have options to get it even when markets may not be that great, uh, my preference is to be a public company with all the headaches that come with being a, a public company. Uh, in addition, and I wouldn't underestimate this, you need to find a way to reward your employees. And without public equity, it's a bit harder to do it. There are other methods, but it's, it's really uh, much more clumsy uh, to allow people to... Um, to benefit from the appreciation of the companies. So then it comes down to when can you go public? Uh, when do investors understand your story? When have you been able to communicate it in a compelling way? To your point, it would be nice to have data or act things happening in a fairly frequent uh, set of milestones coming so that you don't go public and then nothing happens for three years because that would be extraordinarily uncomfortable and it may also get in the way of raising the additional capital, which is the whole reason you went public uh, in, in the first place. But yeah, you really get a feel for, is this thing mature? Do people buy my story? Do I have more information coming? And then you wait for the market window to, to open and, and you take it because you don't know when it's gonna close again. You know, We've had a, a good couple of years in, in biotech. Uh, for those of us who are a little bit older, we know that there was a, there were long periods when you couldn't go public no matter how good your story was. So you take the opportunity, certainly, uh, when, when you can. Yeah, and I, I agree with all of that. Uh, I think the, uh, the point that David made about um, having enough uh, development in your evolution that you're, you're able to predict a, a stream of news that you're able to uh, progress a, a platform or a, a candidate so that you're, you're able to hit inflection points. And the most important thing is that you're ready to be transparent right, as a public company. You're able to communicate clearly. Um, it's really also important that you're able to get in front of top tier fundamental investors that will further build confidence. So if you, if you don't have the company evolve to a stage where you're confident you can attract quality money, you're probably better off staying private for a while longer. Did either of you, in you know, in your case, David, with multiple companies, but um, look at reverse mergers as a way of going public, which has some advantages compared to IPOs, and there's certainly a number of shells out there with significant capital, which you know there's lower transaction costs of doing it, and and there are a number of companies that have gone down that route, but there are also some disadvantages. So I'd be interested to hear your view on on the appetite. Yeah, so it's not something that flagship will typically do. I think there's real benefits from using the traditional IPO process uh, to get your story out. So whether that be what they call the test the orders meetings, 
uh, the, the, the pre, the, the IPO meetings with your investors. Uh, there's a lot to be said for that, also in terms of being able to uh, work with the sell-side analysts so that they can publish on your company uh, after you go public. So for me, that would be the preferred route. You have some costs associated with it. You have to pay your bankers, your lawyers, and everybody else. Having said that, if you do a reverse merger into a shell company, uh, you're, just, you're, you're paying in a different kind of way. You're usually paying the shareholders of the shell company. It probably doesn't turn out to be all that much different in the end. Uh, you have the challenge now of telling your story, um, and it, it may not be quite as easy. Ultimately, if you reverse merge into a shell company, you're still going to have to have I think probably some private type investors who are willing to help recapitalize that company because at the end of the day, you're still going to need the same kind of money. And I, I alluded to some numbers earlier uh, to get that company off the ground. Uh, it seems to go in and out in terms of you know, fads as to whether or not you want to do that. There's some issues around market capitalization, whether or not you know, you have to file an S3. I think it's an S3 versus, you know, an S1. And there's some complexities. Um, I don't think the reverse merger is going to necessarily make things a lot easier for you. Maybe you can go a little bit quicker. There may be a few cases where it makes sense to do it. But if ultimately you have a really, really high quality company that is well along, you know, I would just say suck it up and, you know, go through the traditional process. Uh, yeah, bid. Uh, yeah, the only thing I would add to it is I think the only time it would make sense um, for what we were looking for is if it came with competencies that we didn't possess, uh, like clinical or you know, that that would make a transition uh, more productive. So, having been through the um, IPO process collectively more than a number of times looking at, at David, and I, I think this is your first IPO. I don't know whether, you, Dan, you went? Second. Second, okay, so multiple times in aggregate. Um, when you look back at it, what were the biggest challenges for you and what would you have done differently with the benefit of, of hindsight? And whether it's you know dealing with financial advisors, managing conflict and timing, prioritization, whatever it is, what's the, what's the thing that, you know, looking through hindsight, you would think about? Yeah, from my perspective, it's a dynamic tension. Um, you go public, and obviously it's a process that you don't know what the, how receptive the market's going to be. Um, but it, the most important thing is to make sure you're prepared to be a public company. And as you have the right infrastructure, you're able to communicate with the public in a seamless manner. You have a flow of news. So it's the, it's, the tension is that your private investors want you to get liquidity and go public. And... It may not be the right time for management in terms of you want to hold back a little bit more to make sure the company's a bit more mature. Um, so th that's really a, a cost-benefit approach. But um, I haven't had any uh, with the two experiences. They weren't bad experiences where I wish I had done something differently. Um, I think it's always always the reflection that we could have shored this up a little bit more or that. But one of the one of the uh, features of being public is it clarifies, it forces you to address that evolution in a timely manner. Um, you just have to make sure you have your right infrastructure and the right competencies to be a public company. Nothing, nothing to add. And in terms of the syndicate for the IPO, how many banks did you have? How many banks were you involved with? Sure. 
Um, first company I was involved, uh, involved in, it was a genomics company. We had uh, three banks involved. Uh, this company, Q, it's an unusual uh, financial backing. It's a group down in Dallas called MDB. They, they fund earlier stage sort of platforms out of universities, and it's mostly a, um, a, a private investor uh, syndicate. Um, we're now looking at kind of going forward with a secondary in the future as being the uh, branding with uh, established banks and, and research analysts. So we went out public with a different type of investment bank that brought us public through that syndicate. Uh, and it has its advantages. The disadvantage is we don't have the uh, marquee names associated with the company quite yet, but I feel like that's where we're headed now with the, the data set we're evolving. So um, there's also no right answer here. Tip, the typical answer is it's three to four banks. Some, I've seen five, I've seen two. Um, there's a certain amount of economics you're gonna have to split among those banks, so it's hard to have, you know, to go to very large numbers. Um, the banks have to be able to work well together. Some do better than others, and so having some experience on which bankers actually cooperate and which ones don't is, is, is helpful to know. Uh, when, when setting it up. In the case of Ruby's Therapeutics, if I remember correctly, uh, we had J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Learink, and, and Jefferies, but there are also other very high-quality banks out there. I'm working on another IPO now. Some, there'll be other banks, some of the same, some other banks that will be as part of that syndicate as well. Um, having industry as an um, equity investor is a double-edged sword. Um, many investors are somewhat concerned about what it means in terms of potential takeout and whether it, it locks you in. On the other hand, there are benefits. So how do you think about having industry as an investor? So, um, By industry, I'm yeah. talking about you know, large major. Yeah, so there's two types of it, two parts of industry, right? So there's the industry venture funds, and, and Novartis, we had one of those, and um, they made Novartis lots of money, in fact. And then there was Novartis itself, which, which means you know, the main organization that developed and sold drugs. And they're two different an animals in, in many different ways. Um, having an industry venture fund in, it's probably like taking venture money from almost anybody else in my mind. Uh, having said that, if you could have uh, one or two uh, you know, big pharma companies who have put money in from their main, what I would call their mainstream business, uh, there's some validation then that you're working on something that's important to them because they don't typically do it. So I would have no problem taking money uh, from my previous employer, from any number of you know, high quality pharma companies if they want to invest in our, in our crossover uh, or, our, or our IPO. Uh, one more thing, I mean typically it doesn't happen, this is it doesn't typically happen unless they're also doing a deal with you and they're getting equity as part of that deal. And then the question really becomes not whether you want them to be an investor or not, but did you get a good deal? Yeah, I think that's the most important uh, feature of it. Um, if the, the positive of it is, is it shows um, confidence and what they've invested in, particularly if they're a partner. They would, we just want to be careful that there aren't uh, certain rights associated with it where it's more dilutive than just the stock itself. 
um, whether or not they want a board seat or, you know, you just have to look at it carefully. But I think by and large, if it's structured properly, investors probably look at it as a vote of confidence as long as it doesn't come along with future rights that somehow impede your ability for strategic flexibility. Actually, uh, Dan said something twice uh, that's very important. Uh, any deal you do is dilutive. And I've heard more times than I can count, we, ha we receive non-dilutive capital. It doesn't exist. And, and you really have to get that out of your vocabulary. So in the final minutes, um, we're now public, and you're now having to fulfill all the obligations of SEC filings. But worse than that, you have to deal with sell-side analysts, um, which um, can be challenging, especially for small biotech companies. And some analysts are better than other analysts. But some analysts, I'm sure, can create enormous amounts of work and distraction, which takes you away from things you may need to do at the company and causes consternation among your advisors and uh, among your investors, and generally makes life more stressful than it needs to be. So how do you think about managing, and I say managing in a, a you know, not disingenuous way, but optimizing the sell side in order to maximize the value to you, to the investors, but also making sure that you have enough time to do the company in terms of your principal job? So, yeah, I, I look at, talking to sell-side investors um, perhaps a bit differently than, than many people do. For me, it's a measure, uh, what, the, what does sell-side analysts ask or write? It's a measure of how good a job we did at communicating our story. And to the extent that what they write doesn't match with what we think we're doing, or they ask the same questions over and over again because they don't get what we're saying, uh, it means we have to do a better job communicating. So. So I think, from that perspective, um, it's useful meeting with sell-side analysts from time to time. Now, you can go too far, uh, and you can try to go to every meeting put on by every bank, and you can do 20 to 30 one-on-ones over the course of two days at each of those meetings, and you will be completely worn out and wasted a lot of time doing that. So I think you have to be thoughtful about how and when you do talk to sell-side analysts, but I, to me, it's, uh, it's actually value-added overall. Yeah, I full, fully agree. Um, from experience, I would say the, um, the last thing you want to do is exactly that, a mass action approach, uh, because that is the spaghetti on the wall. Um, it, it's, it's really helpful if you um, just focus on quality across the board. Um, try to have the best scientific rigor you can by being challenged, but also with the research analysts. Um, the, the, the more probing their questions, uh, it should actually be uh, illuminating for shareholders. You should establish a, a very transparent relationship. And even if you have bad data, they appreciate transparency and clarity, explanation as to why it occurred and what your, what your resolution plan is. Uh, and they, they, I think they really help clarify for investors if you have that type of open relationship, but you need to keep it focused on a few top-tier research analysts as opposed to mass action. So, you know, for example, and we're having the opportunity of, I think, going to dinner tonight, when I saw your slide of I.O. targets, and I realized I have a different view, I have an opportunity now to do a better job communicating to you you know, why you've missed some. And to me, that's a real challenge. And maybe when you put the 2021 chart up in a year from now, the list will be different. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. 
The 2020 IO360 program will take place February 26th through 28th at the Crown Plaza Times Square Hotel in New York City. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Thanks for listening.